Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the content director at Word on Fire, and joining me is the great Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, great to talk with you. Brandon, always good to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Let's start off as we normally do with a little bit of updating here. I know you've been celebrating more and more confirmations. We've talked about it the last couple episodes, but they continue on, don't they? I am just confirmation crazy right now. I've done, I think, it, I've, I reached um, hump day because I've done my 16th confirmation. I think I've got 15 more to go. So I'm just over the hump. And uh, I've, you know, gotten a kick out of them. I did four this past weekend, one on Friday, two Saturday, one Sunday. And they all involve a lot of driving. So you're, my region is big geographically, so I'm driving all over the place. Uh, so they're all good. It, I must say that they kind of hit you after a while, like you'll just suddenly get really tired and realize, yeah, I've been not only traveling, but doing these, you know, lengthy liturgies. And But they're they're just wonderful. I, I enjoy it very much, and it's very moving to me as these, these kids come forward bearing the names of the great saints of the tradition. And then I'm there as a, you know, unworthy, but but still a successor of the apostles, Um and offering the Holy Spirit, I mean, the same way that they did. So anyway, the whole experience is, uh, is a wonderful one. And is your mouth still having spasms from all the smiling afterward with all the photos? <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's true. The pictures afterwards can be a little uh, difficult because some of these, I've, I've confirmed as many as 185 kids at once. And so that's 185 pictures then <laughs> that you have to smile for. And yes, your, your cheeks get a little worn out from it, you know. Today, I want to talk about a man who you've identified as a pivotal player, someone who really is one of the most important minds in the history, not just of the Catholic Church, but of Western civilization, and that's Thomas Aquinas. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you first discovered Thomas Aquinas and what he's meant to you. Yeah, he's meant the world to me. I first discovered him when I was 14. I told the story last night at the confirmation because these kids in front of me were about 15, and I said, you know, my whole life changed when I was your age. And I said I wanted to be a baseball player, which is true. I wanted to be shortstop for the Cubs when I was 15. And then um, I was introduced to Aquinas by a young Dominican friar at Fenwick High School. And uh, the experience did indeed change my life. It was a um, lecture on the arguments for God's existence. And that's how I first got into St. Thomas Aquinas. And I don't know. I, I think it was really something from um, from heaven. I think it was from God's providence. But I just became fascinated with the things of God. And even though I was just a little kid, I was going to the library and I was taking off the shelf these big tomes of Thomas Aquinas, which I barely understood. But the same way you get fascinated with Shakespeare, you know, as a kid, or with Einstein, if you're into the sciences, this great mind that I just barely understood, but I was I was being drawn into the complexity and wonder of it. That's how it happened for me. That's how I first got interested. I mentioned the phrase pivotal players. Uh, We're releasing the Pivotal Players film series here in a few months, and Thomas Aquinas is one of the featured figures in that series. There's a whole hour-long episode devoted to his life, but give us just a brief sketch of who was Thomas Aquinas. Thomas was a 13th century Dominican friar who emerged as the greatest of the scholastic philosophers and theologians. So, Go back to this kind of golden age of Catholic uh, culture and Catholic thought. He was the champion of that golden age when the church was, I would say, in a very vibrant dialogue with the culture 
to use our language today. Thomas was accessing, of course, the, the complexity of the great Catholic tradition, but especially the works of Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, which were coming into vogue in the West for the first time, at least some of his major works. And Thomas was affecting this extremely creative and extremely um, fecund um, thinking together of biblical Catholicism with Aristotelianism. And it had and still has a revolutionary impact on the way the church understands its doctrine and the way it understands its relation to the culture. And I think that's why Thomas Aquinas remains of such central significance today. I know many Catholics have probably heard the name of Thomas Aquinas, and many have probably even heard of his major work, the Summa Theologiae, uh, but that book can be a little intimidating to dive into first. So let's talk a little bit about some of his other writings. We'll get into the Summa in a minute here, but can you give us a brief overview of some of his major works? Yeah, well, Thomas wrote actually a number of um, Summa, they would have called them summaries of theology, uh, when he was a young man, we'd say like a doctoral candidate. He wrote what what everyone in the Middle Ages and really up until about Luther's time would have done. They cut their teeth on the um, so-called sentences sentences of Peter Lombard. These were um, commentaries on the Church Fathers done by a famous bishop of Paris. And they became sort of the standard text for medieval theologians. So the young Aquinas writes a very lengthy, elaborate commentary on the sentences. And that's kind of a first summary of theology. Then he writes a second summa that's called the Summa Contra Gentiles, the summary against the Gentiles, so-called. Some speculate it was written for uh, Christian missionaries in Muslim lands. So it was a highly philosophical summary of the Christian thing. And then this, the final great summa, the Summa Theologiae that you referenced, is Thomas sort of summing up his life's work. Um, but he also wrote a number of biblical commentaries, uh, many of which have not been translated into uh, English. He also wrote a whole slew of commentaries on Aristotle's uh, writings. Um, and so you have a whole uh, collection of, of works. You also have the so-called disputed questions These are um, literary accounts of what were very lively events where a medieval master would entertain um, objections and questions about a major theme in theology. These were later written up as uh, literary uh, artifacts, but they're called the disputed questions. He also writes things that are called the quadlibital questions. Quadlibet in Latin means whatever you want. And so the quadlibitals were events where a medieval master would come into the room and entertain quadlibet, whatever you want, any kind of question from the floor. And by all accounts, Thomas Aquinas was the master of the quadlibital question. And so you can find those, too, as part of his, uh, his oeuvre, part of his work. So all of these things, uh, they're all complex. It's not easy to... You know, like, like here's Thomas for Beginners, written by Thomas. I mean, al- almost everything he wrote is at a fairly high level of sophistication. Um, but there are a number of, you know, commentators over the years and to the present day who might give us a way in. Who would some of those commentators be? Well, think of, you know, Peter Craft, who writes a book called The Summa of the Summa, I think is a very helpful way to get sort of an overview. I think of the great F.C. Copleston, one of the one of the really um, – significant historians of philosophy in the 20th century. 
um, read his great sweeping history of philosophy as a large section on Thomas, but also a, a separate book that's simply called Aquinas. Um, I'd read anything by Etienne Gilson, who's the great French um, Thomas scholar. And then, of course, the great G.K. Chesterton writes a book on uh, Thomas Aquinas. That Gilson, by the way, said, you know, those of us who've been studying Aquinas for 50 years, and our work is nothing on this English journalist who sits down and writes a masterpiece on Aquinas. Um, so those are a number of ways maybe just to get into his life, his spirit, and the, an overview of his thought. G.K. Chesterton is another, another one of the pivotal players that we're featuring yeah. in the series. There's a good connection between them. And I love that story that's told of him writing this book on Aquinas. They say he just asked his secretary to run off to the library and grab some books on Aquinas. And she brought back close to a dozen. And he kind of just flipped through them, scanning here and there, closed all the books, and then just dictated his book on Thomas Aquinas, yeah. who you say, as you say, Jill Son, who's maybe the one of the great Thomists of the 20th century, says, this is the book he got to read on Aquinas. Yeah, right. It, it's quasi-miraculous because uh, Chesterton, and this part of his genius, obviously, just to cut to the heart of something, he was not a technical scholar by any means, uh, not a philosopher by training. He was a journalist and artist really by training, a uh, literary figure, but yet was able to see some really central themes in Aquinas. One that I always go back to is Chesterton says he should be called Thomas of the Creator. And that there's something really right about that, how creation is a dominant motif in all of Thomas. That's why going back some years now, when I was a student in Paris contemplating my doctoral thesis, I decided to write on Aquinas precisely on the issue of creation. And I think in the back of my mind anyway was Chesterton. That's a way to get into the whole of Thomas Aquinas. Let's talk about Thomas's style. You mentioned the disputatio, this structure of the Summa, where he puts forward the best objections to a particular question, and then he offers his response. One of the things I've always admired about his work is that he doesn't just put forward straw men. He puts forward the best of the best objections and sometimes even ratchets them up. He makes them even harder, yep. and then he responds. Talk about why that's such a, a great approach for apologetics or evangelization. Yeah, no, that's quite right. And go back again to these events, I'm calling them. Uh, the disputed questions were public events. A master like Thomas, a magister, he was called. Our, our words like maestro and, and uh, master come from that. The magister, the teacher, would announce a, um, a dispute, a question. And it's going to be on the incarnation or it's going to be on the Trinity or it's going to be on the power of God. And then people would come great numbers, to uh, listen to this dispute. The master would preside, but usually a, what they call a baccalaureus or a doctoral student, we'd say today, would actually um, run the conversation. And he'd entertain all kinds of objections from the floor. So someone would say, you know, God can't be Trinity because it says that God is one, and et cetera. And then someone else would raise an objection. Yeah, but Aristotle says this, and uh, it says this in the Old Testament, and the book of Job, and so the baccalaureus would take in all of these objections, uh, respond as best he could. But all the time, the magister, like Thomas, would be taking it all in quietly. Then he would go back and, and think it through on his own and come up with what they call the respondeo. It just in Latin means I respond. So his resolution of the matter. And then typically he would take what he thought were the five or six best objections and then he'd answer those. 
So when he'd return now for round two of the disputed question the next day, that's what you'd hear. You'd hear the respondio and you'd hear the response to the objections. When you read the summa, let's say, of Aquinas, and it can seem like a very dry text, see behind that text to this very lively public dispute where you've got this brilliant magister who's not only resolving a question but saying, yeah, you know, I heard five really good objections to this. And that's why you say they're not straw men at all. It's Maybe there were a lot of silly comments made or kind of stupid objections, but the five or six really good ones he'd remember. And that's what we find in the uh, in the Summa. And so as you suggest, Brandon, I think correctly, it's a really good model for apologetics because it's respectful to the opponent. It's not just a kind of running roughshod over any objection. It's taking very seriously people's objections and treating them in a respectful way. Um, so, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a good model for anyone doing apologetics today. How do you think Thomas would engage, if he would, uh, the so-called new atheists today? If Thomas Aquinas had a YouTube account, do you think he'd jump in the comment boxes? Yeah, no, I, I do. I think, uh, you know, mutatis mutandis, but I, I think the um, um, internet forums today are not all that dissimilar from a disputed question in the Middle Ages. You know, we're hearing from the floor, which now means like anyone that can jump on the really, line. really low floor. Yeah, and you know, and sometimes pretty high objections too. Like you know, your own website, Strange Notions, had a lot of pretty smart people jumping onto it. So that's not dissimilar to the medieval uh, disputatio. And then you know, I guess in, in my own way, I, responding to objections. But then, let's say articles I write or a YouTube video might be like a respondeo, might be a more formal response to objections that I've heard. So yeah, I think that's not dissimilar, and I I like. There's something to me Catholic about that, of the lively conversation, the exchange, the willingness to dialogue with the culture. Um, you know, trace it all the way back, if you want, to the Platonic dialogues. It's something which has been alive in the West for a long time, that the best way to get to the truth is through a sort of structured conversation. And that was eminently true in the Middle Ages. See, keep something in mind. Um, what we know as the university lecture, that's something that came really out of Schleiermacher's University of Berlin circa 1830 or so. That idea of the master coming out and giving a lengthy lecture and students there in seats taking notes on it. But that's a relatively recent form. Go back to like the Oxford style, which still produces this day. Look at C.S. Lewis uh, practiced it. It's not a lecture so much. It was a lively dialogue with your um, tutor, you know, and you'd read a book together and Q&A and then maybe you write a paper, which he'd respond to and critique and then go back to the Middle Ages. You didn't have so much lectures. You had these questiones disputate, go back all the way to the beginning to Plato or to Aristotle, the peripatetic school, walking around dialoguing with his students. Those are much older and more classical forms of knowing and learning and they're very much on display in Aquinas. Now I want to dig into the, the official topic of this episode, which is how and why to read Thomas Aquinas. So we're going to get into how to read, say, the Summa in a moment. But let me ask this simple question. Why is it worth reading Thomas Aquinas? Because he's one of the most brilliant people that's ever emerged in, in the West. I mean, I'd rank him with uh, Plato, Aristotle, Kant, 
Hegel, you know, Wittgenstein. I, I mean, he'd be one of the five or six most brilliant people that the West has ever produced. And so simply if you're interested in, in philosophy at the highest level, you read Thomas. Secondly, though, as a theologian, he's called the Dr. Communis, the common doctor. There's something about Thomas that is just a touchstone for all of Catholic theologizing. He summed up all that sort of came before him and set a template that has been largely followed uh, ever since. Not that he's the only one you ever read, but there's something of a touchstone quality about Aquinas. Um, and I just find that he reminds me of people like Chesterton that you just, or Lewis, you know, you just keep finding so many true things in him. As you read around a question, you go like, yeah, yeah, that's okay. And, yeah, no, that's not right. Or, yeah, that's got so Then you read Thomas and you go, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the best way to resolve this thing, you know? So I had that experience a lot with him. I had it when I was 14 years old, and I've studied him all my life. So I'd say you read Thomas because he's right <laughs> about an awful lot of things. So that's why to read Thomas Aquinas. Let's get into the how. You know, a lot of people who maybe first discover the Bible for the first time are intimidated and they attempt to read from the first page of Genesis straight through and they get lost somewhere around Leviticus. Would you recommend somebody breaking into the Summa in the same way, beginning with the first article, the first question, or is there a better path to read the Summa? Yeah, you know, first I'd say we mentioned these commentaries, and I, I think that's a wise course, is read some of these people. Get get Coppelson's little book, which you can read, you know, in a, in a few sittings maybe, um, for the overview. Read a Chesterton for a more kind of lyrical, poetic introduction. Then get Crafts, you know, Summa of the Summa, that would take you through it in a more organized way. Also, I'd say this about Thomas. There's a kind of encyclopedic quality to him. So you don't really pick up the encyclopedia and just start reading it. What you do is you say, gosh, I'm interested now in this issue. Let me look that up, you know. So there might be a particular issue in theology that interests you. Go to that section of the Summa. Find that question of the Summa. Here's something now, if you want to plow through it that I'd recommend. I heard this many years ago from a very wise Thomist. If, if you want to just read through the Summa and not lose the forest for the trees— don't read the objections and the um, uh, answers. Just read the respondeos. Now, a lot is happening in the objections and responses. Don't get me wrong. Often the, the coolest, most interesting stuff is there. But to get a sense of the whole thing and the rhythm of it, just read the respondeos as you go through. Um, or then, you know, take like people say the first 13 questions, for example, which have to do with God and God's attributes is a good way to start. Um, why is there a God? Why is God one? Why is God uh, immaterial? Why is God eternal? That could be a good way just to get into Aquinas. Read the first 13 questions. Or, you know, if you're into Christology, um, who is Jesus Christ? You, you skip to uh, the third part of the Summa. Read the first, you know, 12 or so questions of the third part, and you get all this technical discussion of Christology. Um, anyway, I, I'd approach it more as an encyclopedia that you might look at sections as they interest you. Give us a, a sense of the landscape of the Summa. There, there are multiple parts, and it's sort of a logical yep. grouping. How does he progress in his master work? Yeah, well, keep in mind medieval people who um, were immersed in, uh, in Trinitarian theology uh, think in terms of threes a lot. 
And Dante is a good example. You know, three huge major sections of the Divine Comedy, each one divided into 33 cantos, each one divided into little stanzas of terza rima, the third rhyme, and all that. So three, 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 three. Look at a Gothic cathedral. Three uh, elevations, usually three aisles. Three is a big number. So it is in Thomas. Uh, the Summa Theologiae has three major parts. First one, the prima pars, has to do with God and creation. The segunda pars, the second part, which, by the way, is divided into two, what they call the prima segunda, that means the first of the second, and the segunda segunda, the second of the second. So part two deals with um, the human being and human acts and the journey back to God. If the prima pars is the, is the God and what comes out from God, creation, the segunda pars is now the journey back to God through virtue and the good life, etc. And then the tertia pars, the third part, has to do with the way in the full sense of the term, namely Jesus, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So the tertia pars is all about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and the sacraments that now bring his life to bear uh, on us. Thomas never finished the third part. He died uh, right after he finished the section on penance. Um, so he got through Jesus and his life, got through four of the sacraments, and then he died. Um, but that's an overview, first part, second part, third part, God, creation, then human, humanity and the human act, and then Jesus. Let me ask one final question. Thomas is some, sometimes depicted as this super rational, egghead philosopher, theologian, but when you wrote your book on Thomas Aquinas, you subtitled it Spiritual Master. Is this yep. sometimes overlooked that Thomas was not just a brilliant mind, but he was a spiritual master as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's a complicated thing because Thomas was trying to write theology in a very rational, Aristotelian, scientific way. Uh, when they used the word science, they would have been thinking of Aristotle's science, you know, of the four causes. And Thomas was trying to write in this hyper-disciplined way. So it's not like the church fathers. It, it's, it's egregious by its difference. Uh, compare Thomas to any of the church fathers, including Augustine. Thomas is, is different. Thomas is his own thing. It's this hyper-rationalized, very scholastic, um, academic approach. So that's all true. I, I wouldn't want to gainsay any of that. However, you can miss the heart of Thomas if you look simply at the hyper-rational method. Because remember, first and foremost, he's a Dominican friar, a Dominican priest, which means preacher. Well, if you're a preacher, you have to be a Bible commentator because Bible's the soul of preaching, right? And Thomas indeed did a lot of Bible commentary. If you're a Bible commentator, what's going to happen? is anomalies will come up and questions and puzzles and how do I interpret this against that? And this Bible book says this, but that one. What happens then is disputed questions arise, right? Well, if you bring all your disputed questions together into one great summary statement, you get a summa, see? But my point there is go from the summa to the disputed questions to Bible commentary to preaching, the whole enterprise was in service of preaching. And so what's preaching all about but transformation? It's about, we'd say today, spirituality. 
you know, if, if you had said to Thomas, uh, distinguish now, please, your spirituality from your theology, he wouldn't have understood the question. Those terms would not have made sense to him. His theology is his spirituality, you know? Um, I would say his theology informs his work as a preacher and someone who is trying to shape preachers. Remember, he's the founder of what they call studiums. Uh, a studium was a Dominican house. Today we call them a house of studies. Um, what happened in a studium? Well, young uh, Dominicans were formed, and young Dominicans were formed in order to be preachers. So that, I think, is the key to understanding Thomas. Well, it's time now for our weekly question. Every single episode, we take a question from listeners like you. If you have a question for Bishop Barron, just visit askbishopbarron.com. We have a simple way where you can record a question on whatever device you're using and send it in to us here on the show. Today, our question comes from Jenny, who is an impressive, articulate 14-year-old with a great question about Thomas Aquinas. So here's Jenny. Greetings, Bishop Barron. My name is Jenny Leonard. I'm 14 years old from Minneapolis, Minnesota. My question is regarding Bertram Russell's objection to Thomas Aquinas as a philosopher. He says that because Thomas Aquinas already had an answer in mind, provided by the Catholic faith, before doing his philosophical inquiry, his findings are invalid. How would you respond to this objection? Thank you, and I'll continue to pray for you and the Word on Fire team. Well, may I say, first of all, wow, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, at 14, and you I know exactly the text you're reading of Russell's History of Philosophy, which I read too when I was a young person. I remember distinctly reading that objection. Um, I'll say a couple things. First of all, I'll use a tu quoque, you know, that's Latin for you do it too, tu quoque, Bertrand Russell, because, you know, this ideal of, of the completely disinterested philosopher who's simply following truth wherever it leads, give me a break, name one person in the history of philosophy who's ever really been in that position, very much including Bertrand Russell, who had all kinds of prejudices before he began uh, putting pen to paper. Um, I don't know any philosopher. I'm with Hans-Georg Gadamer who would say you can't even begin to philosophize unless you have prejudice in place. And what he meant by that was not in a negative sense of prejudice, but unless you had certain presuppositions and intentions and expectations, no philosopher operates in the kind of intellectual vacuum that Bertrand Russell is somehow assuming there. So the claim that Thomas is not a legitimate philosopher because he's doing what every other philosopher in, in the history of the, of the discipline has ever done. So in other words, I'm not too convinced by that. Second observation is Thomas would never identify himself primarily as a philosopher. He saw himself as a magister sacre pagine. He was a, a master of the sacred page of the Bible. As I just mentioned, you're a Bible commentator, well, then you're going to become a theologian automatically because the Bible is full of anomalies and questions and so on. Well, you become a theologian, then you're going to want to summarize your theology into great summe, great summary statements. And so he probably would not have said, oh, I'm a philosopher. Rather, he'd say, I'm a theologian who's using the work of great philosophers um, to my advantage to explicate the faith further. So I'd say those two things, um, but especially that I remember distinctly reading that in Russell, 
and uh, the basic response is is too quoque. Come on, I mean, every philosopher, to some degree, is operating out of uh, a certain prejudice. No one's operating in this sort of fantastic uh, intellectual vacuum. He's presuming. Well, thanks so much, Jenny, for that great question. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Word on Fire show. We have links to all of the books and resources that Bishop Barron has recommended at wordonfireshow.com. Also, uh, Bishop Barron didn't mention this book in one of his recommendations because he's too humble, but his own book called Thomas Aquinas, Spiritual Master, is a fantastic gateway into the life and work of Thomas. And right now, you can get the book uh, for a special discount only for listeners of this show by visiting wordonfire.org, finding the book. So look up his book, Thomas Aquinas. Finally, we invite you to leave a review of the Word on Fire show on iTunes. It just takes you a couple seconds, but it helps us out a lot because the more reviews the show gets, the more often iTunes recommends the show to other people. And we'd love for more people to dive in and hear Bishop Barron's wonderful help and advice. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. 